0: don't want to become a motivated buyer and be like, I got to close this thing. If you keep your distance emotionally from it, it's like, I don't even want it. That was the way we approached it at the beginning. We didn't really want it. And that made our offer made it an offer that we were very happy for them to accept or come close to accepting
1: best ever listeners before we get into today's episode i'm pleased and honored to be introducing you to trevor mcgregor you recognize his name he's been on the show multiple times just search trevor mcgregor joe Fairless, and you'll hear his interviews that i did with him and he had a lot of value during those interviews well he's had a lot of value in my life for the last five years I have hired him to be a consultant to help me with my real estate business and just personal stuff too as a life slash business coach. And he's taken my game to a different level. Before I hired him, I had four single family homes. And oh, by the way, I was also single. Fast forward to today, my company controls over $300 million worth of real estate. And I am happily, happily married. Clearly, results are going to vary. But He has helped me in five years do things that I didn't even have on my radar. So I suggest that you speak to Trevor McGregor if you're looking to take your real estate investing business to the next level. If you've had success and are looking to build on that success, then he's your guy. Go to trevormcgregor.com or coachwithtrevor.com. And you'll be able to apply for a conversation with him, coachwithtrevor.com. We used to do a free consultation. We got too many free consultations. And he actually is pretty full with his consulting program. And he's very conscientious about the value that he adds. He wants to add tremendous value. So he's being very selective with people who he does work with. So go to coachwithtrevor.com and apply to have a conversation with him. And then you two can decide if it makes sense to work together or not and hire him as a consultant. It has impacted my life in a tremendously positive way. Him and his wife have gone to my wedding. Trevor's been to my conference a couple years. And I know him well. And I suggest that you get to know him as well coachwithtrevor.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And well, first off, I hope you're having a best ever weekend. And because today is Saturday, we've got a special segment called Situation Saturday where a returning best ever guest talks about a challenging and or interesting, ideally both, situation and how they overcame it. And it's not just to hear a story, but it is to learn what we can learn from their experience and apply it towards our stuff that we're doing as real estate investors and entrepreneurs. With us today to talk about a portfolio of 41 houses he purchased about a year ago and how that came about and what the heck's up with it right now. Andrew, serious. How you doing, Andrew? Good, yourself. I am doing well and nice to have you back on the show. If you want to hear Andrew's best ever advice, then go to episode 571 titled Did he pay cash or terms for a 97 single family rental portfolio? A little bit about Andrew. He is a real estate investor obviously at Stewardship Properties. His company owns around 600 units in four states and oversees around 100 properties and 170 units in the Kansas City metro area, based in Kansas City, Missouri. So, with that being said, Andrew, tell us about the 41 unit portfolio.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me back on. This 41 unit portfolio was an interesting one because I guess the lesson in it is sometimes the best deals are the ones you want the least. You always got to be willing to walk away sort of thing. It's probably the greatest leverage you can have in a negotiation. And with this particular deal, we got it sent to us from basically a contact of ours, a friend of ours, met a real estate agent who had this deal and sent it to us. It was one of those deals where there's a handful of stuff that looks interesting and there's some stuff that's just a big, long sigh. Um, (laughs) A lot of properties in rough areas or areas that we have a few in but we don't really want to put much of a presence. So the first thing I asked him, would he be willing to parse out this portfolio? There were 18 that we liked and there were 23 that we didn't. And can we just make an offer on the 18? And they had no interest. And it was like, it was, <laughs> I think it was like a small hedge fund. It was like a small group of investors who'd bought a bunch of foreclosures or notes. I think they bought them notes and foreclosed on them. And they had this just kind of hodgepodge portfolio with a handful of good properties and decent areas. One of these houses. We call it the Kramer house from You know, Kramer from the, the levels. Do <laughs> you know, remember that episode where he was going to make the various levels? It's like Every room is on a different level. <laughs> so you walk up a step and then you walk down. So there's some goopy houses in there. There's also some great houses, some like, beautiful Victorian houses and one of the best areas of town. And then a bunch of these ranches in this kind of sketchy area called Ruskin. That's It's good for cash flow, but it's also pretty tough. You can have some property management issues. A lot of people lost their shirts there, a lot of out-of-staters. They looked okay. And they bought these properties for inflated values. That was happening a couple of years ago. But they didn't want anything to do with that. They were like, it, it needs to be purchased all or nothing. And so we kind of look at a few of them. And the portfolio, we'd call it, I'd say, semi-performing. It was like 80% occupied, but you know, it had a lot of turnover, a lot of rehab when these tenants left. It was under-rented. It was very under-rented. But it was at the same time, we knew there was a lot of deferred maintenance that was mm-hmm. going to kind of add up. But one of the things I think about the portfolio, is it's kind of one of those things where you can be right in the middle, right in the weird middle. Like it's too big for a lot of smaller investors, but it's also too small for a lot of the hedge funds. And it's also in areas that they usually don't buy in. And so there's not a lot of buyers for this type of deal. It's kind of helpful to think in those terms. What kind of deals can we purchase that most people aren't interested in? They're either too big, too small they have to close too quick, they need too much work, whatever. Or maybe you, you're really good at investing in a particular area that's fairly rough, You've gotten in with Section 8, you know, that kind of thing. So if you have that kind of advantage, it really works for you. So we made it, finally, I was just talking to my brother who does our property management, brother Philip, and it was just kind of strange, like, I don't really want this. And so it's like, let's just make a low offer and see what they say, right? So we made this offer that we thought was very low. I think it was on at $2 million and we made an offer about $1.4 million four, five or something like that. One point Mm -hmm. was there about, and they came back at like one five. And so we were just about there. Like like I was shocked they came down so much, Mm -hmm. but the advantage was, of course, we were like, well, we'll we'll see if we can split the (laughs) 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 difference. Take a little bit more on it, but we talked to him again. And again, it's always advantageous to talk to the seller, not just the agent, the seller, if you can we, I, I kind of skipped over the first part where we talked to the seller just briefly getting some information about the property. We talked to him again in between that. And what we outlined is one of the biggest problems with this we didn't do a syndication or a partnership or anything like that because then we're having to split the equity two ways. And also because it's a long, drawn-out turnover rehab situation, it was kind of like how much money are we going to have to sit in escrow just sitting there waiting for the rehabs or are we just going to have to have virtually no cash flow for the first two or, or a year and a half or whatever. So... For those two reasons, one, the weird cash flow situation with a semi-performing group of properties that would need rehab as you went, and the fact that we just don't like splitting equity. We Mm -hmm. didn't want to do that. But uh, I guess to take a little bit of a step back to explain how we ended up financing this thing, which I think is a fairly creative method, is our normal strategy is the so-called BRRRR strategy, buy, rehab, rent, refinance. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So what we do is we buy properties usually reos or fixers or absentee owners or whatever we fix them up we rent them out and then we take a group of them usually between five and ten and we bring them to a bank and we refinance it so then we get private loans on them up front eight or nine percent interest and then we refinance those out and then we try to put those private lenders onto new properties it's just kind of like a wheel that spins around and get a property with a private lender rehab it rent it refinance it with a bank put that private lender on a new property well This is a little bit lucky on our part, but we just happened to have a very large one of these going through. We had 25 properties being refined.
1: Okay.
0: And these were a little bit more expensive too, so it was not quite the same price, but very close. We had a couple other private lenders that we thought we could reach out to, but- The advantage here was we could set it where these properties would refinance just before these other properties were set to close. So we could just take these private lenders and move them over to these other properties. Now, the one problem with that is since we didn't want to cross-collateralize them on Mm -hmm. create this giant mess, nor would these private lenders want to be cross-collateralized with a bunch of other people that some of them don't even know. So we wanted to take one property from this house and move them over to this house. Which is an arduous process when we're trying to put together, I don't think we ended up financing every one, but something like thirty plus trustees on thirty different plus different properties. I think we left a couple, and Claire. So we asked the seller if we could set the closing in four stages. So we close there's forty one. Thirty three of them were in Missouri and eight were in Kansas, because Kansas City is in both sides, it's just right on the border. So we took that eight in Kansas, made that One closing. And then the remaining 33 we spun to three groups of 11. And we closed each one two weeks apart and we kind of made it, we split it up so each portfolio was about the same value, same, you know, a couple of good houses, a couple of the not so good ones and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And they approved that. So this allowed us to (laughs) not try to put together 30 plus trustees on the same exact day, which would have been just a logistical and accounting. Well, I guess it'd be a title, but we have to put together all the trustees and whatnot for the company, which would have been just an incredible nightmare. So we were able to split this up over the course of a couple of weeks. And that way, it wasn't such a logistical nightmare. And we were able to close, basically split this package of 41 into four separate, smaller closings. Mm. And that also wasn't a big thing, but it gave us a little bit of time to parse out the turnovers and rehabs and the ones that we knew that we're just banking ready to go right away. So it kind of had a double advantage, but particularly advantageous because we were able to use a form of financing that is predominantly used on just this one-off house, buying it with a trustee from a private lender and then going through the birth strategy. We were able to do that because we had a large portfolio being refinanced and then turned over into this large portfolio that we were purchasing. We were able to do it on a larger scale using what's usually a smaller type of refinancing model.
1: Who'd you go through for that
0: financing? The bank? Oh, a local bank that we have here that we've done a lot of work with called Bank 21. If you're in the Kansas City area, I highly recommend looking them up. But unfortunately, they're not a national branch.
1: And they did all all four? No, they refinanced
0: a bunch of properties we already owned and had rehabbed and rented out. They refinanced that package of 25. Then we had a bunch of private lenders, just sort of mon types that had been paid off from that refinance. And we put them onto the various houses within the package of 41. Does that make sense?
1: It does. From a seller standpoint, was there any downside for you structuring it this way?
0: For them, I'd say the only downside for them, there's two minor downsides. One Usually sellers prefer a cash out versus financing, just because there's a possibility of financing that the financing doesn't come through, and they have to put the property back on the market. The other downside is that because we split it up into four groups, it took a little bit longer for it to close in that respect, and they could have been caught. It's presumable that we could have, not presumable, it's possible we could have bought the first two and then not been able to close the last two. We were able to pretty much assuage any concerns they had. They were basically saying that none of our earnest money that we'd put down up front would go towards anything but the last closing. So they could have gotten where they closed the first two groups. And then if we backed out, then they would keep all of the earnest money. Plus they would have already sold half the package. Mm-hmm. And because we split it up and got their approval on what groups would close first, they were basically each very similar groups of properties that closed each time. So I think as far as closing groups like this, you could even do this if you're on a smaller scale with a couple of houses, assuming the seller is having some trouble selling the properties. And that was our advantage here, is that this is a weird package of properties to sell. It's too small for the institutions and too big for most investors, but certainly not all.
1: Mm-hmm. And that was a year and a half ago?
0: Yeah, it was about a year and a half ago. They're what not.
1: What's the status of the portfolio now?
0: Well, it took a while to get through them all because some of the tenants were there. I think there's even a couple that are still there from original. So there's still two properties that need to be turned over. But we have turned them all over and rehabbed them all to our specifications and brought them up. We debated for a while whether to sell the properties that were in the rougher areas because we actually made them two offers. One was on the stuff that we wanted and the other was on everything. And the ones on everything, we just know we're not, we're paying like $20,000 a house for the ones we don't want. Mm-hmm. So, or, or something like that, but very, very little. And eventually, like, we have properties in these areas. We know how to manage them. They're good cash flow areas if you do it right. So, we decided to keep them and they, they've done well for us. So, at this stage, the portfolio is basically humming along. It took a while to get there. It was, it was definitely a project. It was, if you talked about it in terms of apartments, it would certainly have been a repositioning, at least a minor repositioning. But but we we're also able to increase the rent substantially. I mean, they were renting houses for $700 that we're renting for 1000 or more now.
1: Mm-hmm. Now that you are a year and a half into it, are you glad that you bought the houses that you didn't initially want?
0: I would say absolutely at the prices that we offer. For <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it goes back to the point where uh, the very first point I was making, if you're not needy for the deal, you don't want to be a motivated buyer. Even if you've gone a ways down the line, love the house or whatever, you don't want to become a motivated buyer and be like, I got to close this thing. If you keep your distance emotionally from it, it's like, man, eh, you know, it's, I don't even want it. That was the way we approached it at the beginning. We didn't really want it. And that made our offer extremely, always in the eye of the beholder, but it made it very strong, offer that we were very happy for them to accept or come close to accepting. So if you are willing to walk away, that makes a deal all the better if you make that offer. Now, you don't want to just say, like, you want to give them some sort of hint that this isn't something that's hugely interesting to you. You don't want to just throw out low balls left and right. Let's just throw them out to banks. But explain why your offer is going to be low. That makes it a lot easier for people to stomach in those who oftentimes, or oftentimes a lot of properties come back to you. you know, and make a low offer, and then they'll say no, and then two months later, you'll hear back from them, and you'll get the deal done. But if you just come off shooting out low offer care that might offend the person, if you can justify the case. So in our case, we took the ones we wanted, it made a more competitive offer on them on the ones we didn't want. We said, we're not really willing to pay much for these. So we had a low number attached to them, kind of explained our case to them and they just wanted them all gone. And so they were willing to come down to a number that made it. So it was a very good price for us, even on the properties that we didn't want.
1: Is that never wanting to be a motivated buyer from taking that standpoint, what about the thought in your head or in someone's head of, yeah, but if I don't buy it, then I know they've got a whole lot of other people who will. So I do want to get this deal done.
0: I think the key is, does the deal make sense on paper? If it's a deal that works, yeah, go ahead and get it done. But there's a tendency, it's like being at the auction. You, know, you have your strike price, but once it starts going... Once they start jabbering as fast as they normally jabber and whatnot, you kind of get in the sense where you want to, quote, win. And you don't win by buying it. You win by buying it right. So the key is to keep sort of, I don't know, an emotional distance, I would say, where it doesn't matter whether, well, it doesn't matter whether you get it, but it only matters whether you get it below your strike price. If there's other people willing to buy it above what makes sense for you, let them buy it. There'll be another one. The key is to see it sort of as dispassionately as possible, I guess I would say.
1: Mm-hmm. If a best ever listener is listening to this, what would be the perfect scenario to implement this approach again with the creative financing and all the stuff that you talk about? Well, I'd say one of the things is I'd say
0: with regards to small portfolios, small portfolios are often tough. And institutions, the big banks, the big like B2R and Colony Homes, they have no interest in this kind of stuff. A lot of investors who are working around don't have really the ability to buy, even if four houses, five houses, six houses. Or sometimes a seller will be like, I'll sell all of them, or I'll sell them in pieces, but they'd rather sell all of them. So if you can find situations like that, you have an advantage if you can find a way to purchase them all together. So if you've built up, say, like you've started using the burst strategy, or you flip and you have some private lenders, we've seen a lot of portfolios. A lot of them are junk, but every once in a while, there's some good ones. And just being able to put together the financing for those gives you a a distinct advantage because when somebody wants to sell a portfolio of houses, even if they're willing to sell them in pieces, they'd much rather sell them together. It's a, they're pretty much saying that by listing it as a portfolio. So if you can find a way to finance them, that gives you a distinct advantage over a lot of investors who can't. And they've also if you can buy some of the junkier ones and, and then justify a lower offer by saying you don't really want these, that can be an advantage too because every property has got a value, even if you just want to sell it. So if you put a very low value on those junky properties and sell for a little bit over that after you get it, Great, especially if you're willing to buy bulk in wholesale and sell retail individually. There's profit to be made there if you do it right. This is a deal we're working on right now, so it's too early to give any specifics because I don't even know if we're going to get it done. But just an idea of these various situations where it's an odd deal or it's a portfolio. And if you do what most people aren't interested in doing or can't do, there's an advantage. Like we're looking at a, a group of condos right now. This guy. And,
1: and j- just to clarify, you did this deal a year and a half ago, but. You just said that this is a deal that you are trying to get done. So were you referencing the story you're about to tell with the condos?
0: Yes. The 41 is done. We re- we Got it. Just to clarify. Okay, we basically cool. refinanced every house in that portfolio or, or all but a couple of them with banks. Okay. So that's done more or less, and it's all performing. The condo deal is sort of similar. It's a group of That being said, I don't know if we're going to get it. We're negotiating. I can give the broad strokes and why it's a deal that most aren't interested in or can't do, and thereby there's an opportunity. So it's 17 condos in a condominium complex. That's about twice that size. The guy turned an upscale apartment complex into a bunch of condos back 10 years ago. Sold off about half of them and then stopped, and now he wants to move his money elsewhere, and so he's selling the rest of them. But the problem is for him, if he sells them individually, he'll take and put every condo on the market at the same time. Otherwise, he'll just sink that market. He also has rented them all, so he has all these leases in place that makes it tricky in that respect. Apartment buyers and institutions and stuff like that, they're not interested because it's not the entire apartment complex. They want an apartment complex that's not half of one. We, on the other hand, mostly focus on single-family houses and small multis. I mean, we do buy larger multifamily properties. I think, actually, our first podcast together, we talked about the 32-unit apartment complex, we did right, and the 29-unit apartment, we did wrong. Mm-hmm. But normally, we're buying houses. So we buy some condos too, and this kind of fits in like, okay, we're basically buying 17 houses or condos in this complex. And they first listed it at about what the average price would be for each of those condos on the market based on what the few comps that have sold recently in that area. But who's going to buy it? Institutions apartment buyers they're not interested in that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. It's got to be you a know, local lo- lo- local, local investor yeah. like you.
0: Yeah, and homeowners aren't interested in small investors, it's probably too big for them. Yep. So there's not many people that want to buy that, especially since there's an HOA there and HOAs they make condos tough. They can eat away your cash flow and make it pretty tight. But we think we can actually pull a similar financing tr- trick quote unquote with this property as we did with the 41 moving to private lenders there. It won't cash flow great, but it'll cash flow very well, and they brought the price down quite a bit where the point we'll have some built-in equity, assuming we're willing to hold them, or, which we might do, hold them slowly selling one at a time and getting a cash flow because we'd, we'd be getting a good solid equity position up front. But it's one of those things where there's definitely equity there at the price they want to sell them, but you can't extract it quickly. Because if you can't list them all at the same time, and if you put them all in the market at the same time, you're going to crash that market because there's just too much <laughs> inventory, right? Yep. The way I put it is the whole is worth less than the sum of its parts. <laughs> but there are deals like that in that mid-range, with small portfolios of houses, portfolios of condos, things like that that the big players aren't looking for, they're not interested in. And most normal investors just can't put it together to finance it. So if you can find a way to do that, there's less competition. There's often plays you can make to, to get pretty good equity margins right up front.
1: The key besides being savvy enough to identify this as an opportunity and then put the pieces in place, the key really is in the financing because that's the big hurdle that most people have who are small or medium because if you are typically buying one or two properties at a time, you're going to have a hard time getting financing for this Frankenstein project. But if you're too large, then you wouldn't want to touch this for scalability reasons and it just seems messy. So the question, and then we'll wrap up here, is how can someone who's listening get their financing prepared so that if they were to come across a portfolio of, say, 45 single families scattered throughout or a condo community offering up, say, 30% of the condos, they can strike and act on it?
0: I'd say there's a couple ways. The first one is you want to constantly be building your financing network on both sides. And we have it on two sides, basically private lenders or private investors too. It could be equity too on the one side. And then your list of banks or other types of lending outfits that can refinance your property with long-term debt. So I'd always be talking to banks, taking them out to lunch, figuring out what their criteria are, what they're willing to offer, what kind of property they're interested in and whether or not they have a seasoning requirement. A seasoning requirement is how long you have to own the property before they're willing to refinance it at the appraised value instead of just how much money you have into it, which is critical. Oftentimes these days, banks are willing to do it as soon as you have the property rehabbed and rented. They'll refinance it, whatever it appraises that, and the amount of money you have into it doesn't matter. But we've had banks that have been great lenders for us, and all of a sudden either they just fall off and get really conservative or we hit their lending limit and we can't do it anymore. So it's constantly be finding new banks. You also always constantly want to be looking for potential private lenders or private equity investors. And that way, just talking to people, networking, going to various events, always be telling people what you do. One way that my dad recommended, which I think is great, is just sit down with a pen and pad and and see, can I put down 10 names of people that might have money sitting in a CD that's doing nothing, that's making 0.1% or whatever. If you put down 10 names, see if you can put down 20, see if you can put down 30, and then start to talk to these people, put together a prospectus or a business plan. And, and if you have done some deals in the past, create a little bit of a tier two on that deal and give your resume, both your resume in terms of your actual resume, but also your resume in terms of what you've done and, and your business plan too. Take them out, mention it, see if they're interested, take them out for lunch and just constantly trying to grow this list. Once you have a couple of people, maybe you have a couple of private lenders, you might be in a position for that. I mean, if you have four private lenders and you're looking at a portfolio of five, then all of a sudden that might be something that you can transition over. Or maybe you have a private lender who's lent you 100000 but you know they have a million and then they could lend on more. And also, I'm sure you've talked to some people about syndications or partnerships or things like that. If we didn't have the private lenders to do that portfolio or this upcoming one with the, the condos, so again, we might not get, but we're trying to. You might be able to get a bank to loan the 75%, get a partner to bring in either all or most of the down payment, and then you split the equity with them or maybe give them a preferred return or an interest rate. So maybe they get like 4% interest plus half of the profits or whatever. There's a million different ways you can arrange it. So the more context you have, the more people that would be interested in lending to you, the more people have already lent to you, the more opportunity and possibilities you have to make a deal like this work. If you don't have very many people that you've built these networks with, that you've built these relationships with, your options are fewer. And that's fine. It's how everybody starts. But as you work, you want to build that up. And that presents more and more opportunities for these types of creative deals.
1: Andrew, how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you?
0: The best way to get in touch with me is probably on my weekly column for Bigger Pockets. You can also go to my website, which is just AndrewSerious.com, which is pretty small right now. Maybe someday I'll do something more with it. But AndrewSerious, dot com, And then again, I have a column on bigger pockets.
1: Well, thank you for talking to us about the creative solution and the closing of the 41 single family home portfolio and some takeaways. One is. If you don't need to do the deal, then good things can happen from the deal because you won't be a motivated buyer. Two is, and this is, I think, more important than one, in my opinion, is that as we're acquiring properties, we've got to think about the end at the beginning because then if we are doing a good job of buying some single family homes and then we're amassing a portfolio and then, oh. I need to liquidate. If we're in that in-between stage, then it's going to be tough for us to get maximum value for our portfolio because it's going to be a non-traditional buyer who is creative and who is savvy enough to put a deal like this together like you. But also, you and others like you, Andrew, aren't going to do it at a premium because you're providing a solution to a challenge that others have not been able to solve.
0: If you're selling, you don't want to be selling to a small market. And if you're selling in that in-between area or a weird deal or something like that, you are selling to a small market.
1: And then on the flip side, as active investors, we should position ourselves to be able to capitalize on those types of opportunities and how we do that is we need to, one, find those opportunities, but before that, we should focus on the financing network, both debt and equity partners, and you walk through ways to do that. And in particular, I like some of those questions that you asked the banks with seasoning requirements and if they can refinance at the appraised value, what their limit is, things like that. So thanks for being on the show. Again, hope you have a best ever weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. If you want to hire the guy who I hire to help me with my real estate investing business, then go to coachwithtrevor.com. That's coachwithtrevor.com. The Invest This Podcast interviews the elite in real estate investment to uncover the secrets to building an empire in every aspect of real estate investment. Visit investthispodcast.com. That's I-N-V-E-S-T-T-H-I-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com for the top 10 real estate books to build your empire, and to learn more.